You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. Before we begin, please keep in mind the Toys for Tots annual Christmas tradition sponsored by the U.S. Marines. Any new toy donation would be greatly appreciated by the Marines to help give a lot of underprivileged children a very Merry Christmas. Okay, so here we go. My guests today are Ken and Don Cepeda, Ken's father. Okay, Don's you're father listening to America's Web Radio, and uh, we will Navy. hope that uh, we're having a little USS bit of a technical problem, but that will be resolved quickly. But we're going to go to... And Jesus was aboard the USS Pasadena the in classic Tokyo Bay, about 100 yards away from USS Morgantown, Missouri, Pennsylvania, and I hope Japanese they're listening and Marine. we'll pick up and can Jesus go from there. We'll go audio temporarily. Ken and Don, and, welcome to the program. Uh, Stuart, Good morning, it's all Pete. yours. Good morning, Pete. It's such an honor. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, Ken, I just mentioned uh, your father was tomorrow. And, uh, Tell us what a tomorrow Stuart, is uh, and a little you can bit hear about me, his it's all childhood yours. and your childhood. Okay. Um, <clears throat> a tomorrow is a uh, native uh, that is born in the island of Wong, which is uh, part of the Marianas Island in the western Pacific. Uh, about 1,500 miles from the Philippines, and um, we're just natives of that island. And he was born, my dad was born uh, on March 8, 1921, and he had, uh, his parents uh, had 10 kids, and he was one of them. Wow. Uh, Wow. He had five, uh, four brothers and uh, five sisters, and uh, fortunately, there's uh, three of the siblings are still three sisters are still alive till this day. Wow! So, yeah, he, uh, the island was, uh, yeah. Growing up, you know, I can't talk about his childhood, but I can talk more about my childhood and what I remember. Um, yeah. Uh, growing up in the islands, and uh, you know, we we're not as fortunate as a lot of people. The island is, uh, you know, was uh, uh, taken over by the Japanese back in, I guess, in the '40s, before the Americans uh, took it over. Uh, I guess late '40s, and uh, the people of the island um, became American citizens, I believe, in 1950. So. Um, anybody born in Guam right now is uh, considered American citizen. And right, your father. Uh, how many boys and girls in your family? How many siblings did you have? We have five uh, siblings. I have a brother and uh, three sisters, and uh, I am the middle child. I have a younger brother and a younger sister, and then two older sisters. So, and they're both. Uh, yeah, everybody is uh, in. Uh, live in this part of the United States, um, two in Ohio, and uh, my brother's in uh, South Carolina, and my sister Jan and her husband is down in Tampa, Florida, where my dad actually lived. Uh, for yeah, let, let me ask you this time. about island, island life. Uh, Guam is not that big. It's I forgot the size of it, but it's uh, uh, 
a decent size island, but not too big. What does a right. man do for a living on the island, say, before the war? Before the war? Well, a lot of, all they did was actually uh, cultivate and, you know, live off the land and fish off the ocean. Uh, there's really nothing to do before the Americans or Japanese. You know, Japanese occupied that island. Uh, they were, I guess, in control of that island before the Americans uh, took over. So they were assisting the the Japanese in whatever they were doing, you know, and uh, helping them out. A lot of farming in in that area, and I guess sugarcane was one of the uh, crops that they grew for a while. But, uh, you know, they they just farm off the land and live off the ocean for, you know, fish a lot. Um, So they didn't have much. You know, yeah, they, they have, did what they could to put food on the table, right? That's that's true. Yes. All right, Don. Let me ask the you island, this. Like, oh, go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. The, uh, you know, the island, like it's, yeah, as I grew, uh, when people ask me where I come from, you know, and I said, well, the island that I grew up on is uh, 30 miles long, and it's either it's four to eight miles wide, so <laughs> you can go around that island within 45 minutes, you know, if you. You can only drive 50 miles an hour at the, at the fastest, so they didn't have any freeways or anything like that. Two-lane dirt roads, so, you know, yeah. 45 minutes to take you around the island. <laughs> wow. Don, let me ask you this. What happened to the Cepeda family after the Japanese occupied Guam? And I want you to tell the folks about a U.S. Navy radio man called George Ray Tweet. Okay, thank you, Pete. Um... When um, Jesus, Papa as we call him, um, returned to the island, his father had owned three homes, and all had been destroyed. And so the family, Guamanians are family-oriented people, and they live together, they help each other out, they all got together and um, helped rebuild the homes, and... um, Papa started working for the government, making 11 cents an hour at that time. <laughs> and which nowadays, it, it, I mean, it was calculated out to about $1,000 a month. But um, George Ray Tweed um, was a decorated radio man, uh, a Navy radio man, and he worked for the Navy communications office, and he was on the island of Guam. And when the Japanese um, invaded Guam, um, he was one of five uh, American servicemen that survived that invasion. And all five uh, went into the jungle. Eventually, the four others were caught and executed, and Ray survived. And he lived in the jungles in Guam for two years and almost seven months, and he was uh, protected by the native Guamanian people. Um, They honored him, and they protected him. And there was one family, uh, Antonio Artero, that helped him um, escape and kept him safe while he was in hiding. And Mr. Tweed promised him when he returned to the States that he would buy him a car. 
and <laughs> Mr. Tweed worked with General Motors on a special promotion, and he was able to go and deliver a brand new car to the family that kept him safe for all those years. That's amazing. That's amazing. What about the, the brutal occupation of Guam? Uh, I know you know a few things about that. Tell us about that occupation. Well, a story that I will always remember was a story that my mother-in-law told me before she passed. And she passed from Alzheimer's, and I am very fortunate that she was able to tell me the story, even though it broke my heart and still does to this day. When the Japanese occupied the island of Guam, they would build craters and round up the natives and put them in these holes. And they would come in the, in the evening at night with guns and shoot into the holes. My mother-in-law and her family were captured and put in one of these holes, and fortunately they survived. And just hearing stories like this from her, and the emotion she felt from that and how she suffered with those memories for years. Most Americans don't know what the islanders went through during the invasion by the Japanese on the island. So I feel very fortunate that we're able to tell some of the story. Wow. Uh, I, yeah, it, it was brutal occupation by the Japanese in the Pacific Islands. I, I read all about those. Ken, uh, tell us about your father's basic training, his first assignments, and finally the attack on Pearl Harbor. <clears throat> yeah, he, um, you know, he he was uh, enlisted. Uh, he joined, actually, the Navy. And at that time, uh, there were only allowed uh, 10 Guamanians to enlist per month. And fortunately for him, he was one of the ten. He was 18 years old when he enlisted in 1939. And, of course, he, uh, you know, he was um, uh, dispatched to um, this, um, I guess, to the uh, uh, Philippine Islands. Uh, no? Yeah, he was, he was dispatched around the Philippine Islands and around that Pacific area for a while in training. And, but, you know, in Pearl Harbor, when he went to Pearl Harbor, uh, he was uh, assigned to the uh, USS Honolulu in Pearl Harbor. And, uh, you know, 19, uh, or in December 7, 1941, when the attack came, he was actually getting ready for church. You know, the Romanians are uh, Chamorros, better known as Romanians right now from the island of Guam. Uh, we're mostly Catholic, so, you know, we're very religious about uh, going to church on Sundays. And uh, he was getting ready, and he was on top deck, full gear, you know, with his white uh, uniform on. And uh, he was waiting for his buddy on top, on the top deck. And uh, the uh, officer on deck asked, uh, hey, Zeus, my dad, you know, wh why are you up so early? And uh, he told the officer, well, we're, we're going to church. And he's waiting for his buddy down below deck to come up. So 
anyways, uh, when they were on top deck, uh, and he was talking to the officer on deck, they started uh, hearing this uh, roaring thunder, you know, of uh, hundreds of planes coming, you know. And uh, he said, I don't know how he calculated, my dad calculated the number of planes, but there was like 180 planes coming through the first wave, and then there's another 170 coming uh, from the west, or coming from the east. No, they were coming up, they were coming from the north. And um, it's telling me that uh, they, they saw these planes coming, diving down uh, about 30 feet above the um, sea level and not knowing, you know, what's going on. And But it was, uh, it was amazing seeing uh, how many planes were coming. And all of a sudden they started uh, uh, seeing these planes dropping these torpedoes into the, into the water and all of a sudden, they heard a boom, and the officer on deck, you know, um, uh, called out, uh, this is not a drill, you know, this is a full full attack. So when he made that announcement, uh, Dad said that uh, all the hatches on his ship on Honolulu were locked down, and his, his station was down and uh, loading ammo up to the gunnery. So he wow. couldn't get down there. You know, he was locked. He was locked out, and uh, all he did was uh, all he had to do was hide underneath the uh, the uh, stairwell. So he he actually witnessed the the full attack, wow, bombing of Pearl Harbor from the. All right, Ken, I, Ken, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we have to go to our first break. So let's leave it there till we come back. Your father uh, hunkered down and witness the entire attack on Pearl Harbor. Folks, we'll be right back. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. Okay, Ken, let's let's go with the story about your father. He's hunkered down. Uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor has just started. Go ahead and, and complete that, please, sir. Pete, if I may, um, just sure. a minute before he goes back into that, something that I wanted to mention about um, Papa's uh, 
time in basic training. His first assignment was as a steward, and he called it a glorified cabin boy. <laughs> but um, he felt honored in any way to serve his country. But his first temporary assignment um, in the Navy was aboard the battleship, the USS Pennsylvania. And this little quote that he gave us um, makes us all laugh. He says, I'll say this, it was a heck of a lot bigger than the canoes back on Guam. <laughs> so <laughs> he had a sense of humor, and uh, I wanted to make sure that uh, the <laughs> Yeah, I think you can't compare them. Yeah, you can't compare the Pennsylvania to a canoe, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Ken, Ken, go ahead. Okay. So, yeah, he was uh, he was underneath the uh, stairwell, you know, and uh, and, and uh, uh, during the attack, and he said, Battleship Row was, was hit the worst, and there was a lot of smoke, fire, horrible explosion. He shook the entire harbor. Yeah. Uh, and it was, uh, and the explosion was actually, it was the USS Arizona. You know, it was the huge battleship just lifted out of the water, you know, and it just went down. And he goes, uh, he'll never forget that sight, you know. And he figured the bomb had gone down, down the smokestack. But, uh, you know, I think it was uh, told that uh, it actually penetrated the deck, uh next to the turret too and exploded uh you know near the powder magazine taken down with her you know 1177 men off the 1512 crew members so wow yeah it's it's a site that he said he would never never ever forget so you know, we, we I think most of us have seen the films of the Arizona exploding, but to have been there and witnessed yeah. a United States battleship actually rising out of the water, water from an explosion had to be terrifying, I guess. Uh, wow. Don, uh, what else did your father-in-law say about Pearl Harbor? One of the things that um, he told me was, he was scared to death, and he said, rightfully so, and all the other crew members were scared, but they knew their duty, and they knew their honor to their country, and he said, we all went and performed what we had to do, and he said at that point, they didn't know if they were going to be shot down or by the Japanese or their ship was going to be destroyed like the Arizona, but they continued doing the work that they had to do. And he, he'll never forget how low the planes were and how close they were and firing on them. And um, one of the uh, bombs exploded on the pier next to the USS Honolulu that he was on. And he said it felt like the ship was going to be blown out of the water at that time. But fortunately, the USS Honolulu suffered no casualties in uh, that attack. But he said those memories lived with him the rest of his life. And he said to me, he said, seeing the red dot underneath those planes as they flew over the ship was so terrifying. And... um, he said the U.S. 
lay blame on the attack on the current Admiral Kimmel and General Short, but he feels it was not their fault, and he feels that the U.S. government never gave proper notice to uh, Guam or to the, I'm Pearl sorry Harbor. to Pearl Harbor and what was they felt that the government knew was going to happen. Huh. I remember your dad told me when I interviewed Jesus, uh, he said that Admiral Kimmel was a good sailor and did not deserve the dishonor that was reaped upon him. That yeah. is very correct, and he said that until his dying day. He truly believed Admiral Kimmel was um, treated poorly, and he did not deserve the dishonor that he received. Yeah, Pete, um yeah, I want to re uh, reiterate back about when Dad enlisted, you know, uh, the Guamanians uh, being native, you know, they they weren't allowed to carry any weapons when they enlisted. So <laughs> that's why he said he was a glorified cabin boy, you know. He was uh, the only uh, position that they could hold was a steward at that time. Wow. So, yeah, but he served under, you know, admirals. Uh, Kimmel and uh, um, actually Admiral Kimmel's uh, son uh, called me up. Oh uh, yeah, uh, what was his name? Um, Admiral Kimmel's uh, his grandson. I interviewed Admiral yeah, Kimmel's grandson. Yeah. yeah, his grandson, and uh, he fought for many many years to uh, right the wrong done to his grandfather. Uh, right. And we just lost him recently, too. Uh, oh, no. Great guy. Great guy. Yeah. But, uh, you know, well, you know yeah. uh, but I know Admiral Kimmel and General Short were blamed, but, uh, you know, in the war, when there's a military disaster, politicians aren't going to take the blame. They're going to blame the military. That's um, right. That, that's just the way it is. That's but, the way uh, it is. Uh, yeah, Ken, your father... Also served aboard the aircraft carrier Saratoga, and then the USS Chicago. Tell us about those assignments. Well, yeah, he assisted with the cleanup and uh, <clears throat> the restoration of Pearl Harbor um, uh, until he was reassigned to the carrier USS Saratoga. And uh, the two carriers, the the Enterprise and Saratoga, um, I guess they sailed to uh, Samoa to protect reinforcement efforts. You know, and then in January 11, 1942, uh, the uh, Saratoga was hit by a torpedo and uh, was forced back to Pearl Harbor uh, for repairs. Then uh, Dad, Jesus, was reassigned to the uh, heavy cruiser USS Chicago. You know, at, at that time, the Chicago sailed uh, to Australia and but was rerouted uh, to the Philippine Sea and uh, to the Fuji Island going to Australia. And and all he had to, uh, and they had to meet up with uh, General MacArthur. That was the plan. Um, and they established headquarters uh, with uh, Vice Admiral Carpenter in Australia and then waited for MacArthur and his family. And and he said that he he got to salute General MacArthur's, and uh, he did it with uh, 
he was very proud of that, you know, that he had the opportunity to be there uh, to witness uh, MacArthur. And uh, and he, he said that it was a great duty for him. Um, the staff stayed in the huge mansion, uh, huh. and it was owned by a very rich people. Um, and I guess the person that owned it uh, is Mrs. Myers, and uh, the uh, the stewards uh, were assigned to uh, guest quarters out back. Uh, it's like a three or four bedroom house, and uh, <laughs> a lot of <laughs> a lot of apple and orange trees on the property, and. Uh, he enjoyed his 10th month uh, uh, assignment there of uh, the force, uh, moving over to uh, Brisbane. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Uh, that, that, that is great duty right there. Don yeah. uh, Jesus was eventually assigned to the new light cruiser, the USS uh, Pasadena, and that was his home for the rest of the war. Tell us about that assignment. He was... Um in Australia for about nine months, and a captain on the staff with him in Australia was promoted to vice admiral and was assigned to take uh, command of the uh, destroyer flotilla in Maine, Portland, Maine. And he asked um, Papa to go as his steward, and he was very honored and accepted that duty. He said they weren't in Portland very long before he received orders to report to Boston to take command of the USS uh, Pasadena. The vice admiral was not in Portland that long before he was asked to take command of the USS Pasadena. And he took my father-in-law with him, and he was on the Pasadena for the rest of his time and the rest of the war. Um, while on the Pasadena, he passed the Panama Canal and um, joined up with a fast carrier force at, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's called Utilia Island um, yeah, in 1944. And they took part and played a major role in supporting the Philippine campaign. So um, from there, he said that they uh, headed into the South China Sea, hitting Japanese installations and shipping along the coast of the Indochina corridor. Um, He was at sea for 80 days, and after a brief stay in the island, um, they left for the... Lefty Gulf to pound the Japanese home island, including wow. industrial targets and military installations on the Tokyo Plain. So he he took part in quite a few um, campaigns, and he was all over the world in his Navy career with, and he was very proud of it. Uh, wow, he saw a lot of action. Doing the world he did. War II. He, he, did. Was, he was in the thick of it. Uh, wow. All right, uh, Ken, there's so much that he did. Tell us about the other combat action uh, that your father saw while serving on the Pasadena. And I'm, I'm sorry we have to go to our second break, but uh, when we come back, I want to hear about 
Jesus's uh, action aboard the Pasadena that you know about. Okay. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at firearm liquidation service at outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's yours. Okay, folks, I believe we're back on the air. We're having a little bit of a tech problem here. Uh, Ken, uh, go ahead and tell us about the rest of the action that your father saw aboard the USS Pasadena. It is quite amazing. Go ahead. Yeah, um, he said uh, they were in major engagements uh, almost all the time. And uh, he had ringside seats actually near the bridge, you know, being a a steward next to the uh, Admiral. And... Is that a lot of constant pounding of hundreds of ships and just nonstop gunfires and big guns, you know, and desperate enemy enemy planes uh, diving and you know just on suicide missions uh, into the into their ships all over the ocean uh, in that area. And he even watched uh, kamikaze uh, pilots uh, diving into ships and. All the kamikaze pilots blown up in the, on the ship and in the sky. Um, he said it was, it was such a scene, and you know the skies just lit up. Um, it, it was just like during the night; it just looked like day because of all the explosions and uh, you know fire and everything around him and around the whole uh, fleet. Yeah, and. Uh, and then, and then he said uh, they went uh, and pounded Mount Suribachi uh, and uh, two uh, and Iwo Jima for two days, for days uh, on end, you know. And and yet the Japanese hid in uh, caves to survive the bombardment. And 
There's a lot of fire and explosion. Uh, Daddy uh, walks men, good men die, and uh, a good heart. It was, he had a strong heart just watching all that, you know. Wow. And it was just devastating to him. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, he, Dad didn't really talk a lot about that, but when he did, yeah. Sometimes it's hard for Ken to talk about these things because he knows how it affected his dad. So if you don't yeah. mind, I'll, I'll continue on. Um, oh, I understand. Then, uh, I understand. Yeah, it's, it's very emotional for the whole family. And, and um, honestly, Dad didn't open up a lot about his time uh, in the war until he spoke with you. And you got the full story, and you got information that some of the uh, that the family never even received. But he, he mentioned that one morning there was a big explosion in the admiral's cabin, and a large shell had penetrated um, the bulkhead and nearly missed my father-in-law. And wow. the admiral called out to him, "Are you okay, Jesus?" And he said, "Yes, sir, but I don't want to go through that again." So. <laughs> And he said shrapnel was all over the place, and Papa survived quite a bit and um, was a very lucky man. Yeah. I, wow. Uh, but, uh, uh, what, did he, what did he did he say anything about when the war ended, what happened aboard the yes, ship he, or anything like that? Yeah, he did. Uh, you know, when... Uh, um, after all that explosion, then and then all of a sudden he said, uh, you know, the war was just over, just like that. And uh, they were all hugging each other, slapping, back slapping, jumping up and down, you know. And <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they were so happy that uh, all this has stopped. But uh, when it ended, uh, you know, and when the Japanese surrendered, uh, uh, the signing of the treaty was... Uh, in Tokyo Bay, you know, and uh, he said he was, his ship, Pasadena, uh, uh, was moored about 100 yards from the USS Missouri where the Japanese uh, delegation uh, surrendered. And uh, so he was part of that history, and he is on top deck on this ship, you know, watching uh, all that uh, happen. So, and he said that there was, like, thousands of ships American ships, well, thousands of ships around on the ocean, you know, surrounding the bay, and then hundreds and thousands of planes flying overhead when they uh, signed the treaty, and that's that's just to uh, let the Japanese know that, uh, you know, that uh, they were still strong and they weren't backing down at no deal, you know, they, was, they wanted to show their power, you know, and then and hopefully... Uh, deter them from doing anything like this again. So, wow. Yeah. All the way and from Pearl Harbor dad, into Tokyo Bay. Wow. Yep. Yeah, and Dad was uh, honorably discharged, uh, you know, in 1946. So, and... Hmm? Well, I certainly... I, he certainly did his duty. I... I very few men saw that much action in the Pacific. I guess they had to be on combat Navy ships to uh, witness all that from the sea. But 
Don, tell us about your father-in-law's return to Guam after the war. Well, as I mentioned a little earlier, um, when he returned to Guam, the island was devastated. And um, his father had actually owned three homes on the island, and they were all um, devastated and destroyed during the war. So the family got together and helped rebuild. Um, And my father-in-law got a job to support himself um, with... uh, Guamanian government, and as I said, he was making 11 cents an hour. He finally ended up working for the U.S. Customs as a lieutenant. He worked many, many hours, many overtime hours, and um, the kids didn't see a lot of their father during that time because he just worked very hard to support his family. And um, he retired in 1981, and... um, he he uh, uh, retired at a salary of forty five thousand dollars a year, and he said he was he was the highest paid retiree on the island, which uh, made his boss at the customs office very jealous. <laughs> I guess so. How how long did he how long did he collect that forty five thousand dollars a year? Well, until he passed away in nineteen. Uh I mean, 20, I'm sorry, 2018. Wow. December 2018. Well, I can certainly say he earned his retirement, though. Yes, Uh, he did. Amazing, amazing. Uh, Kim, tell us a little bit about your father's uh, later years. Yeah, when, uh, like Don said, you know, he worked hard, and he did really work hard. Um, He moved, uh, well, you know, 1967, um, he moved the family, not all the family, part of the family, my two sisters, moved to uh, uh, Columbus, Ohio. And the reason why they took Columbus, Ohio is because my mother's father is a retired Navy as well. Um, and he lived in, in Columbus, Ohio. And then 1968... The rest of the kids, my, myself and my uh, brother, actually, uh, not my younger sister yet, because my younger sister is like six years younger than me. Um, she stayed behind with my parents uh, in Guam while the four, her four siblings were uh, moved to uh, Columbus, Ohio in 1968. So we, but he didn't move the, there until 1981 after he retired from the uh, uh, customs and every year he would uh, join us in Columbus for about a couple months he had two month leave so we didn't see a lot of him you know for a couple months I mean we only saw a lot of him as much as we can for a couple months every year until 1981 so and he lived in Columbus Ohio then and uh, and then when he retired in 1981, he moved uh, everybody, my wife, my mom and him and my younger sister moved to uh, Columbus, Ohio then. And, <clears throat> and, in ni- okay. uh, and then in 1993, uh, he moved down with my sister, Jan, who is a retired Air Force 
uh, uh, veteran as well. She uh, wow. joined the Air Force, and uh, actually she retired and currently living down in Tampa with her husband, who is a retired Army as well. So, and uh, my dad and mom moved down there in 1993 until uh, uh, dad moved up here with us in 2017. Um, yeah, he said uh, that when he moved to Georgia, uh, you know, he goes, uh, he enjoyed peaches, but uh, he, he's not a, a peach yet. <laughs> but he, <laughs> but he, loved, he loved the peaches. <laughs> So. I remember him telling me that. He said, I'm not a Georgia peach yet, but I do enjoy the peaches. I remember yeah. he said that. And, and your father, when we were closing out the interview, he said, I've been retired since 1981 and collected a government retirement check for 37 years. I offer no yeah. apologies. Shoot, I earned it. Don't you think? That's right. And I, be, I believe he truly did. Uh, wasn't that's a, your father's wife, uh, one of her sons uh, was aboard a nuclear power sub. Can you tell me that story, one of you? Yes, yes. Um, my uncle, uh, my mother's brother, Uncle Eddie, Edward uh, Carbolito, he, uh, he, was, he, joined, he is a retired Navy man as well. Um, actually, my uh, mother's brother, two brothers, Harry was a uh, retired uh, Air Force, and uh, my Uncle Eddie was retired Navy. But uh, my Uncle Eddie, when he enlisted in the Navy, he enlisted uh, and was assigned to a submarine, a nuclear sub, actually, the USS Triton. And it, uh, it uh, circumnavigated around the world underwater in 1960. And right around, and when, uh, the, the one thing I could remember, even till this day, uh, you know, I was probably around seven years old when um, it came close to Guam, and uh, the captain of the submarine told Eddie, Uncle Eddie, that, you know, they're going to be passing by Guam, and uh, he had Eddie... Uh, looking through the periscope, and actually they passed through a village that I grew up on. Our family and Jesus, uh, we grew up in the, uh, the village called Agate. So they were huh. passing, the submarine was passing through Agate Bay, periscoped up, so Uncle Eddie could see his dad's house. And uh, I could remember, I could remember before this all happened that uh, my uh, grandfather telling us that Uncle Eddie's going to be coming through underwater looking at the house. <laughs> uh, they were pre-warned about, you know, they, they were notified about that, that his son Eddie was going to be looking at <laughs> his dad's house. And uh, it's actually on on uh, um, 16 millimeter uh, reel. And uh, oh, that is after that, that we could see Eddie. We were watching Eddie look through the periscope and looking through the house. And I remember to this day that we were actually looking out on Agate Bay because our uh, my grandfather's house was up on a hill 
that you could see the bay. You know, the island's so small, so you're really kind of like right there, you know. So that, that is amazing. It really. We yeah. have to go to our last break, folks. Stay with us. We'll be right back uh, uh, talking about Jesus Pedro Cepeda, United States Navy veteran, World War II combat veteran. Stay with us. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Back with you. Uh, I find it interesting that being in the military, how ironic things can be sometimes. One of uh, Jesus' sons was stationed at McCoy Air Force Base in Orlando, Florida, and I was stationed at McCoy Air Force Base in Orlando, Florida. It's just, I find that stuff amazing. Do you guys ever get a chance to visit Guam? I did, uh, Pete, back in, uh, well, I was there in 1972 for our our sister Jan's um, wedding, and then uh, I was back there in 2004. So I'm planning to go, hopefully, in next year with hopefully a couple of my daughters if they want to go. I know one of them wants to really bad. So, uh, yeah, it's been a while. Is, yeah, and how long is that trip? How long does it take you to get to Guam? Well, it's usually uh, it's gonna, you know, it's 15 hours ahead from us from here from the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, they're 15 hours ahead. So it takes about almost a day to get there, but there's no direct flights. You have to go, you know, stop in either Japan or Honolulu, Hawaii, and then connect from there. So, yeah, it's 7,000 miles from uh, Hawaii and 15,000 miles from here to Guam. So it's, uh, wow. yeah, it's a long trip. <laughs> it is a long trip. Uh, it, it, are there any reminders on the island of Guam of World War II? Well, there there are some uh, old Japanese and probably even American. As a matter of fact, you know, growing up when you asked me that, and just 
looking back, um, Dad always, after the war, and, well, we were there with him, and as young kids, I could remember uh, going and scavenging some copper, you know, and we would go into a tank and that, that was left on the island. So there were some tanks, old American Japanese tanks, that we would uh, actually go and get the cop whatever coppers in there. We would, you know, scavenge them and uh, turn them in for cash. So yeah, we were hunting these uh, old equipment, you know, seeing what we could get from them. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. I know the, uh, a lot of islands, even in Europe now, there's still people being killed by unexploded ordnance that suddenly explodes. Has there been any kind of uh, dangers like that on Guam? Back, yeah, yes, back then it was. There was a lot of, like, you know, Japanese would lay mines. So, of course, I'm sure they uh, kind of swept them all. But, you know, you never know in the jungle because, you know, they, they could lay, there's still probably some, you know, live mines in the jungle that, because uh, the jungles are dense in Guam, very thick. So we don't, you know, try not to go in there without, you know, knowing where you're, knowing what you're going for, or looking at what you're stepping on. So, yeah, there's caves in the island, uh, in the mountains, as well. So, I remember you mentioned the thick jungles of Guam. I believe I read somewhere where, after the war, a couple of years or more after the war there were still Japanese soldiers being found on the island and finally surrendered. Do you recall anything like that? Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, I think in the either late 50s, 19th, in the early 60s, yeah, there, really? there were there was at least one, one that I remember that he just, yeah, he just, he just realized that the war was over <laughs> in the 60s. Yeah, the war ended, you know, in the 40s, and now he just realized, yeah, in 1960, I remember they made it, there's a great article on that, you know, so. That's amazing. You know, your father mentioned uh, in the interview that he was on the carrier Saratoga uh, when it was torpedoed. Did he ever say what it was like to be on a ship that was torpedoed? That there, he never brought anything up about that, as far as I could remember. You know, uh, like a torpedo. Yeah, yeah. I know it had to be a, pr a big shot because a torpedo could burn down a big ship. Uh, yes, it would. Yeah, I know. I talked to one guy. He was a, a cook in the Navy in World War Two, and he wouldn't give me a story. And I said, were you aboard a ship? He said, well, yeah, I was aboard the Gambier Bay. And I, I said, well, wait a minute. The Gambier Bay was sunk during the battle of Let Take Gulf. He said, yeah, we went into the water, but I don't have a story. <laughs> uh, your father served honorably, and so many uh, uh, people from Guam have served in the U.S. military. I, I, I think it's been more or less understated or almost neglected about the dedication and loyalty and patriotism of the people from Guam. Um, it, it's a beautiful place. I, you know, I'm on that website for the Guam Island, and uh, beautiful people. Um, and as a man, you got some nice-looking ladies over there, too. 
Well, you know, Guam is uh, right now when you when you la- when you arrive in the airport of Guam, there's a big saying up there, and it says, you know, where America days begin. Because literally, if you hit, if you land that island, you are actually entering the United States. You know, it used to be Hawaii, but now it's Guam. So, and uh, the big thing there also is like the Chamorro language, because we have our own language. You know, other, it's you know, it's it's all on its own, just like any other dialect. You know, we have our own dialect, and it says uh, Hapa Day. Hapa Day means you know either it could it means a lot actually. It's like how are you or welcome. And that's what that means when, you know, tomorrow, the first thing when they greet people, they say half a day, you know, like, huh. welcome, how are you, or how are and you, you told me, Yeah, we're, we're pronouncing your father's first name as Jesus, but in yep. Guam, uh, his name is pronounced how? Uh, it's pronounced Tu or Sus. It's either Sus or Tu, depending on huh. how you talk. How you address them, you know? There's, it's either sus or tu. <laughs> like uh, no, if, it's a, uh, if it's a, if it's a nephew or a niece, they would address it uncle tu, uncle tu. And if somebody's just speaking to him, and they'll address them uh, hey sus or sus, you know? Huh. They'll say sus, and then they'll talk well, know, in their own dialect. Yeah, during the Vietnam War, we had B-52s all over Guam. Um, is the base still pretty big there, the American base? Yes, it is, actually. Actually, the, what I always tell people, and I don't know till this day, which I, I believe it still is, it's a, you know, it's a strategic base for the Pacific, Asian Pacific, because that's where all the B-52s would come during the Vietnam War, and as a matter of fact, in 1972, my brother, uh, when we went back, my brother actually was scrubbing down the fifty, the B-52s as his summer job. Really? Yes, he was scrubbing it down, you know, cleaning it off, you know, just washing the outside of it, make sure it gets back on, back in the air. So I remember him cleaning that up, that he was a... <laughs> That was his summer job. <laughs> Cleaning the B-52s, uh, an, an airplane car wash for a B-52. That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I flew on those B-52s. That is an awesome aircraft. I love the B-52. There, there is no, I don't know if you knew this, but there is no uh, B-52 pilot now that is older than the aircraft. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That is amazing. And yeah, that's amazing. It's is it still operating? Are they still in operation? Do you know? Oh, the what the B fifty twos? Yes. Oh yes, sir. They're still operational. That's still our mainline wow. bomber. It's uh, uh, it's not due to be retired to about twenty fifty. Oh my gosh! That's yeah, amazing. it's been in service for over a hundred years. It's had new engines, new armament, uh, all that good stuff. So. Uh, been a great, great interview, guys. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, Ken, is there any other thing you'd like to say about your father's service in World War II? I mean, such experience and everything else. Uh, I know you got a lot to say, so 
go ahead and tell us a little bit more about your father in the closing two minutes. Yep. Well, Dad, Dad was a very humble man, you know, and he uh, family was a uh, was everything to him, and uh, you know, he served for his country. Yeah. I'm going to have to take over, Pete. Um, I understand. I understand. Go ahead, uh, Dom. Uh, uh, Dad was a very loving man, a very giving man. He experienced a lot in his life, but family was always his top priority. And um, he raised his kids to be the same. And I can say, as the wife of one of his children... My husband, Ken, is raising our children to be the loving, caring, giving people that their papa was. And we feel very, very honored that you took your time to interview him. And it I have to tell you, it meant a lot to him. After you left, he felt he was finally honored and respected for his service. And the whole entire Peta family wants to thank you, Pete. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, Listen, it was my honor to interview. Ken, your father was a hoot. I mean, I I really enjoyed talking to him. He had so much to say, and I could see the pride and the dignity in his face. He was extremely proud of his service. And to tell you the truth, guys, I was extremely proud of your father, too. Um, We have so many, so many un- heralded unsung heroes of the greatest generation and their story will never get out and as they die their story dies with them and i was lucky enough to be the instrument to to get your father's story out there uh ken i know this has been an emotional interview for you and i know you miss your dad very much Uh, my dad was a world war ii veteran too and i miss him every day you know he didn't tell me much about his uh time in the military but he flew over the hump in Burma and India. Uh, I found his records up in the attic one day, and uh, all of a sudden I'm learning more about my dad than he ever told me. So, uh, guys, that's about it for today. It's been a fascinating story. I'm so glad that we got to honor your father again. Jesus Pedro Cepeda, a real, true American hero, in my opinion, and an American patriot, okay? You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.